on CNN. This is the Tony Box, a magical little speaker for kids. And this is a Tony. Tonys are filled with stories and songs that come to life when you place one on the box. She loves it because she can use it all on her own. I love it because it entertains for hours without a screen. Together, we've been building up a collection of all her favorite characters. Every Tony is a different adventure and a new world for her to explore. Listen as the magic comes to life. You deserve a better credit score. Chime's here to help. Just use the card with on-time payments. You'll be happy where it can take you. Get started at Chime.com. Meet Glowforge, the 3D laser printer. Create with wood, fabric, cardboard, whatever's laying around the house. This is Glowforge, and it can be yours. See more at Glowforge.com. The Lead with Jake Tapper, up next on CNN. So why even continue to set these deadlines if Congress is just going to blow through them every time? The lead starts right now. President Biden about to leave for Europe, apparently empty-handed, with no deal among Democrats to pass his agenda. We'll talk to one member of Congress who met with the president. The Northeast hit by a bomb cyclone. Hundreds of thousands of Americans left without power, and the damage is not over yet. And... No more fumbling with your phone or your boarding pass or your ID. The new tech allowing passengers to just breeze through airport security in seconds. But might this be yet another example of handing over all your private information to the government? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with the politics lead in a matter of hours. President Biden is scheduled to leave for Europe. Best case scenario for the president, he will leave after securing the biggest legislative deal of his presidency, an agreement among all Democrats on a social safety net package that would give Biden legislative victories on much that he campaigned on. Universal pre-K, expanded Medicare coverage, paid family leave, funding for affordable housing, major policies to help combat the climate crisis and more, not to mention the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Again, that's the best case scenario. But as of this hour, it seems that Biden will be departing empty-handed. His party deadlocked like a hung jury, unable to reach consensus. CNN's Jeremy Diamond starts us off today from the White House, where the chances of a deal have changed by the hour. Less than 24 hours before he leaves for Europe, President Biden still doesn't have a deal on his social and climate spending package. As the clock ticks down, Democrats still working to resolve major sticking points, including the top-line spending number, an effort to expand Medicare to cover dental, vision and hearing, Medicare drug price negotiation, the details of the climate provisions in the bill, and exactly how to pay for everything. Despite the mountain of unresolved issues, the White House remaining optimistic. Is getting a deal by tomorrow still realistic? Yes. What we're talking about here is the nitty-gritty details, as I like to say. That's always what the focus is on at this point in the negotiations, but it's only 1.30. We've got some time. At the White House and on Capitol Hill, a full court press still underway. President Biden sitting down with the two key holdouts, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, at the White House on Tuesday, making clear he wants a deal now. The president has made that very clear. He wants to move forward, and we owe it to the president to move forward. He's working 24-7. I guarantee you, I've been with him most 24-7. And he's working as hard as he possibly can to get a good, solid deal. And, you know, he believes 100% of nothing is nothing. 
Today, top White House officials keeping up the pressure, meeting with Manchin and Cinema for more than two hours on Capitol Hill. And the president could also head to Congress himself. We haven't made a decision to do that, and we are uh, making decisions uh, hour by hour on what would be most constructive to move things forward. Manchin still casting doubt on key provisions to pay for the bill, like a tax on billionaires' assets. I don't like it. Uh, I, I don't like the connotation that we're targeting different people. There is progress on some issues. Senators Cinema and Manchin both rallying around an agreement on a 15% minimum corporate tax. And White House officials telling lawmakers that the climate provisions in the bill will total more than $500 billion, reassuring progressives. As for the rest, with or without a deal, Biden will board Air Force One tomorrow. There's some flexibility in the morning, but I would not uh, suggest that he's going to delay his trip. He doesn't have the space to, to delay it much. And Jake, beyond the question of whether there will be an agreement, once there is one, the White House had hoped that they could see a vote on the infrastructure bill in the House very quickly. But progressives are digging in, saying they want a vote on both the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package the very same day. The question is, can President Biden move them? The House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer telling reporters on the Hill that he believes the president can look at them in the eye and get them to where they need to be. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond at the White House. Thanks. Here to discuss Democratic Congresswoman Jackie Speer of California. She's part of the group of Democrats who met with President Biden and White House officials this week. So, uh, Congresswoman, I hate to sound like one of my kids in the backseat of my car, but are you there yet? <laughs> We're always almost there yet. We don't operate unless there is a deadline. And so the fact that there are deadlines and the deadlines move shouldn't surprise anyone because that's the way Congress does business. Um, it's messy. It's like making sausage. But this is transformational change that is going to take place as a result of these two bills. So uh, it should be something that we rejoice about when it's all signed, sealed, and delivered. And it's going to be signed, sealed, and delivered within the next couple of days. Within the next couple of days. Today, the Senate Finance Committee released a plan for this so-called billionaire's tax to help pay for the spending bill. Um, this would apply to those uh, with a billion dollars or more in assets, such as real estate or business interest, or for those who make $100 million or more for three consecutive years. Now, according to the committee, this tax could apply to roughly 700 American taxpayers. CNN's Manu Raju pressed Senator Manchin about this plan. Take a listen to what he heard. Are you supportive of the billionaire's tax? Are you supporting the I'm billionaire's supporting tax? supporting basically that we do, everyone should pay their fair share. And I've just tried to think of it. it I don't like it. Uh, I don't like the connotation that we're targeting different people. So what would your response to Senator Manchin be? Well, I like what he says in terms of everyone should pay their fair share. But the truth of the matter is people like Elon Musk, who was objecting to the billionaire's tax, just made $36 billion on his stock yesterday. So what we need to do is find a way to make sure that those who are the very, very rich, these 700 people, are paying something. If what they can do is hold on to the stock and uh, take a loan out against it and not pay the taxes on it, then they're not paying their fair share. And, you know, for those of us that pay 30, 35 percent of, of our income to uh, taxes, we're paying our fair share. and We just want to make sure everyone else is, too. Progressive Democrats started off with a wish list in the six trillion dollar range. Now you're in the ballpark of, I don't know, somewhere around one and a half to two trillion. How will you convince your voters that they're not getting scraps, that Democrats did deliver on the promises you campaigned on? 
You know, Jake, what's really important to appreciate here is that if we, have just, if we had just done $500 billion on climate change, as the president was saying yesterday afternoon, if we had just done that, people would be ecstatic. But we're doing that, plus we're doing another $350 billion in creating universal pre-K. Only 50% of our kids actually have pre-K in this country. In Germany, it's 90%. So that's huge. Childcare, 7% of your income going to childcare as opposed to 30%, which it is in some of the areas and certainly in my area. Another big win. So I think what we need to appreciate, regardless of what that final number is, this is massive transformational change for working families in America. The infrastructure bill is going to create 2 million jobs, and we want to make sure that the 1.6 million women who have left the workforce over the last two years because of COVID, because of the childcare network that doesn't exist, that they can go back to work. So both these bills represent a jobs package, and that's the way we're going to sell it to the American people. Arguably, since the summer now, we've heard Democrats are on the verge of a deal, maybe in a few days, maybe tomorrow. I want to play what Republican Senator Mitt Romney said about this entire process. Take a listen. I watched this going on, and it's like... um it's like the Seinfeld presidency. It's a presidency about nothing. I mean, what, what is this? What's going on here with this negotiation? We're trying to get a budget in place. We're trying to get defense authorization in place. And they're fussing around and stuff where it's really hard to tell where they're trying to go. Are you concerned at all that there might be into other independent voters out there? Well, he's not independent, but other uh, moderate Republicans and independent voters out there, maybe moderate Democrats who may also see it that way. Yeah, the proof is in the pudding. Um, It was really easy for then-President Trump to pass a $5 trillion tax cut for the wealthiest one-half of 1% because they didn't pay for it. We're trying to be responsible here and have a package that is paid for so that we can look the American people in the eye and say, yeah, this is, this is happening. You're going to get universal pre-K, um, but it's also paid for. So uh, that's the difference. And while I really respect uh, Senator Romney, um, he just needs to look in the mirror and recognize that he was able to vote for a tax cut that was never paid for. And we're trying to do the more responsible thing. Well, I'm sure Senator Romney would say, well, he has a rebuttal to that. But beyond that, we don't have any time. But you say the proof is in the pudding. We're sitting here waiting to see the pudding, as I'm sure you are even more so. Democratic Congresswoman Jackie Speer, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jake. Kids as young as five could soon be eligible for a COVID vaccine. But does that mean parents, parents will be on board? Plus, One world leader just had criminal charges recommended against him. That's the same world leader, by the way, that former President Trump just announced he is supporting. Stay with us. In our health lead parents, start thinking about scheduling an appointment. Your young children could get vaccinated against COVID as soon as next week. This would be a giant leap towards containing the pandemic and protecting your kids and loved ones. Now that the FDA made a key vote in favor of the smaller Pfizer dose for kids ages 5 to 11. But as Nick Watt reports, in order to slow down the deadliest pandemic in a century, parents are going to need to get on board. So how many will? Around 28 million kids could become eligible for a vaccine as early as next week. States have now placed their initial orders of vaccine for kids. FDA advisors voted 17-0 to recommend the Pfizer vaccine for kids 5 to 11. In trials, over 90% effective at preventing them getting sick. 
and safety? When we make these kinds of decisions, it's all based on one thing. Would we give this vaccine to our own children? I think no one would have said yes if they weren't willing to give it to their own children. But only about a third of parents plan to get their 5 to 11-year-olds vaccinated right away, so says one poll. There's urgency because we're seeing disease in children. We've seen deaths in children. Among all children ages 5 to 11, COVID-19 was one of the top 10 causes of death in the United States over the last year. Louisiana just lifted its mask mandate everywhere except schools. Done its job, apparently. Broward County, Florida will, starting Monday, lift the mask mandate for high schools. We are strongly encouraging the use of masks, but not making it mandatory. Many other school districts across the country are considering something similar, but the CDC still says wear masks in school and has no plans to change that. Here in Los Angeles, the city council did just change the deadline for all city workers to be fully vaccinated. It was last week. It's now December 18th. Meantime, officials in New York City are standing firm. 5 p.m. Friday, the deadline for New York City workers to have had at least one shot. Now, as of this morning, more than a quarter of the NYPD still hadn't gotten a shot. The commissioner says that some vaccinated officers might have to work overtime or double shifts. Jake. Odd decision for people who are in the business of public safety. Uh, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Joining us now, Dr. Rachida Bissett-McCain. She's an emergency medicine physician and the medical director at the Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Bissett-McCain, thanks so much for joining us. So right now, kids 12 to 15 are getting the full adult 30-microgram Pfizer dose. For kids 5 to 11, it will be 10 micrograms. Can you explain why are the doses based on age, not weight, considering a, you know, a 12-year-old could be smaller than an 11-year-old? So what we do know is that Pfizer actually tested a few different doses before they settled on the 10 microgram dose that was used in the phase three trial. So what I conjecture is that the 10 microgram dose is what seemed to fear the best in that age group. What would you advise parents do if their kid just turned 12? Go with the 12 to, to 18? Yes, definitely go with the 12 to 18 full 30 microgram dose of the vaccine. You heard in Nick's piece, several schools are considering uh, pulling back on their mask mandates, but community transmission is still considered high in almost 80% of counties in the U.S. Does this worry you considering not all kids are going to be protected right away? It definitely worries me, Jake, and I think we're jumping the gun a little bit. We saw this happen in June over the summer when we declared the pandemic to be over a bit too early. We decided that those who are vaccinated need not wear masks, which turned into everyone not wearing masks. And then subsequently, the spike and the Delta wave followed. It's not the time to start peeling back those layers of protection just because we have a vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds on the horizon. We do still need children to mask in order to stay as safe as possible. Over 6 million children in the U.S. have gotten COVID, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Do those kids still need to get vaccinated considering they do already have some immunity already from having gotten the disease and their body uh, building up antibodies? 
Absolutely. The recommendations for children will be the same as the recommendations for adults. Even if you already have had COVID, natural immunity is not enough to protect you from contracting an alternate strain of the virus. So for people who have had COVID, we do still recommend that you get vaccinated. As cases and hospitalizations start trending down, are you worried about the 22% of the eligible yet unvaccinated population? Do you think that they are a lost cause at this point? I don't think that anyone is a lost cause. I do think, though, that there has been so much misinformation that at this point, it's kind of difficult for people to determine what's fact and what's fiction. All we can do in the medical community is continue to push the data, continue to push the science, continue to talk about facts and hope that those who are hesitant will listen. The CDC says uh, immunocompromised adults might need another booster down the line, theoretically, a fourth shot for just for people with uh, uh, compromised immune systems. Do you foresee that the COVID vaccine booster could become an annual shot, much like the flu shot, even though I know they're different? It could become annual. It could be something that is biannual, actually. A lot of vaccines work in that way. When you get the initial dose, it sort of primes your immune system, almost as if you're painting a wall. You put the primer down so that the color sticks and it pops a little bit more. For those who are immunocompromised, while the rest of us may be starting at ground zero, they're starting at a negative 10 because they don't have a functioning immune system to begin with, which is why it takes more doses in order for them to develop an adequate immune response. So as we mentioned, Pfizer is considering lowering the dosage of the vaccine for kids 12 to 15 in the future. Right now, as you and I discussed, they're getting the full adult dose. Teens 12 to 15, of course, are in the lowest vaccinated group when you break it down by age right now in terms of everyone eligible. Do you think this inconsistent messaging is part of one of the problems that might be scaring some parents away? The fact that this is very much a work in progress. It's not inconsistent messaging. It's evolving messaging, Jake. And while I do think that could potentially be scaring parents away, what I want people to understand is that we're not giving recommendations and then just changing our minds the next week or the next month. We're examining the data as it's presented and changing recommendations based on science. It's the nature of science to evolve. For our recommendations to say the same from one week to the next in the face of new data would be misinformation. All right, Dr. Bissette McCain, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. The committee investigating the insurrection on January 6th is now targeting a new Trump associate. The details next. In our politics lead, lawmakers investigating the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol have a new target. His name is John Eastman. You might remember him. He's the conservative lawyer who worked with the Trump legal team and then tried to convince then-Vice President Mike Pence that he had the ability to overturn the election result, despite the fact that his scheme was completely unconstitutional. We are learning that the January 6th Select Committee plans to subpoena Eastman to learn more about that two-page memo he sent that he outlined for Pence to subvert the Constitution. CNN's Paula Reed has been following the story. Paula, remind our audience where Eastman fits into all of these efforts. Policeman is a conservative law professor who is working with Trump's legal team to try to convince former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election. Now, Eastman authored this two-page memo. It's come to be known as the Eastman Memo. And many legal experts say it's just a completely nonsensical legal theory of how Republican officials could subvert the Constitution and try to overturn the election results. 
Now, this theory, if you will, was first presented to the vice president on January 4th in the Oval Office with Trump and Eastman. And then on January 6th at a rally that preceded the Capitol insurrection, Eastman once again called out Pence. And investigators on the House Select Committee looking into the events of January 6th, they say they want to know more about the kind of pressure that Pence was facing from Eastman and others. Now, interestingly, last night we got a new video of Eastman talking about how he felt about Pence rejecting his big plan. Let's take a listen. But I mean, like, you know, just supported and supporter. Like, why do you think that Mike Pence didn't do it? Well, because Mike Pence is an establishment guy at the end of the day. And all of the establishment Republicans in D.C. bought into this very myopic view that Trump was destroying the Republican Party. Now, that video was made by Democratic activist Laura Windsor, and she posed as a supporter of Trump's and of Eastman's to get him to talk. But it's significant because just last week, Eastman told the National Review that any plan to have Pence overturn the election was, quote, crazy and not viable. But you see there in that video, when he thinks he's talking to someone who's sympathetic, he has a completely different story. Now, we've reached out to Mr. Eastman about the potential subpoena and the video. He has not had any comment but a committee aide tells CNN that he could avoid a subpoena if he wants to voluntarily cooperate with investigators. So we're also learning the committee investigating the insurrection has postponed a request for some records from the Trump White House. Why is that? That's right. The committee is adamant they've just postponed this request. They're not withdrawing it. We don't know specifically what these documents are, but it does appear that they're paring down the amount of stuff that they're asking for because they are facing some potentially very lengthy litigation. We know that former President Trump has sued to try to block the House investigators from getting a lot of these documents. And it appears that right now they just want to narrow it down to what they really need. But they reserve their right to go back and ask for this stuff in the future. Interesting. All right. Paul Reed, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Former President Trump just threw his support behind a world leader, a leader who just had criminal charges recommended against him. Plus, law enforcement officials today revealing new details about that film shooting involving Alec Baldwin. And they say no one. No one has been ruled out when it comes to potential charges. Stay with us. In our world lead now, a political endorsement for the man known as the Trump of the tropics. In a written statement, former President Donald Trump is backing Jair Bolsonaro, who is running for another term as president of Brazil. Bolsonaro is a frequent target of human rights organizations who argue his policies have hurt Brazil's indigenous peoples and have promoted destruction of the rainforest, among other charges. And now Bolsonaro faces possible legal charges of crimes against humanity for his disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic. Brazil, with more than 600,000 COVID deaths, trails only the U.S. in global coronavirus fatalities. CNN's Issa Suarez takes a closer look now at Bolsonaro's fight for political survival. He's being dubbed the Trump of the tropics. And with less than a year until the Brazilian election, President Jair Bolsonaro is getting a re-election boost from the man himself. In a statement, former U.S. President Donald Trump calls him a great president who will never let the people of his great country down. Trump's show of support coming just hours after Brazilian Senate committee recommended that Bolsonaro face nine charges, including crimes against humanity for his mishandling of the pandemic, which has claimed more than 600,000 lives. Only the United States has lost more lives. The explosive report accuses Bolsonaro of intentionally allowing COVID-19 to spread throughout Brazil in an effort to reach herd immunity. 
It also claims he delayed vaccine distribution in Brazil by ignoring at least 72 emails from Pfizer. Bolsonaro has dismissed the charges as politically motivated, blaming his opponents and leftist groups. They label me as genocidal, a charlatan, document forger and exterminator. It's absurd what these guys have done. Throughout the pandemic, Bolsonaro has repeatedly dismissed the severity of COVID-19, calling it a gripzinha, just a little cold, and spreading misinformation about the virus. Just last week, he claimed on a Facebook live stream that COVID vaccines could cause AIDS. Facebook finally removing the misleading video almost a week later. Well, with growing anger on the streets and plummeting approval ratings, Bolsonaro has increasingly looked to the American right for inspiration. Do you go? the path of socialism? Or do you remain steadfast and strong for freedom? Just a few months ago, the conservative political action conference CPAC and American import joined in, hoping to revive Jair Bolsonaro's dwindling base. Taking a page from the Trump playbook. Bolsonaro will win unless it's stolen by guess what? The machines. The machines. Bolsonaro has been sowing doubt on the integrity of Brazil's entire electronic voting system, calling for printed ballots to supplement electronically cast votes. You don't have proof that there is fraud, but there is also no proof that there isn't. As the calls for his impeachment grow louder and the threats of criminal prosecution loom large, Bolsonaro continues to fight for political survival, echoing the words of his US ally and role model Donald Trump and threatening not to hand over the presidency next year if there's a suspicion of fraud. I have three alternatives for my future, being arrested, killed or victory. Now, Jake, the report by the Brazilian Senate recommending those criminal charges uh, against Jair Bolsonaro is expected to be handed over to the Attorney General today. But many aren't sure anything will really come of it. The Attorney General, Jake, uh, Augusto Aras, he was appointed by the president himself and is seen not only as an ally and as well as a supporter of Bolsonaro. So for those 600,000 families uh, who'd lost a loved one to COVID-19, perhaps change might not come w- here with this, uh, with this report, but perhaps it may come at the polls next year. Jake? Issa Suarez, thank you so much for that report. Turning to our politics lead in a brand new CNN special, CNN's Dana Bash traveled to three pivotal states in the United States to speak to lawmakers from both parties about how Trump's big lie about the election is affecting their preparations for upcoming elections and undermining the confidence of voters. Dana joins me now. And, and Dana, one of the states that you visited in tech is Texas, where you pushed a Republican state lawmaker on some of the restrictive election changes they're making, despite no evidence, no evidence that Texas didn't have free and fair elections Ones that were quite successful for Republicans, by the way. Really successful for Republicans in Texas. And one of the most remarkable takeaways, Jake, was that I did not speak with a single Republican in Texas or in Arizona or in Georgia who believed that the former president is telling the truth. They all said to me, point blank, Joe Biden is the freely and fairly elected president. However, what they said was their constituents don't believe that. And that is why they're feeling pressure to act. We want to restore that confidence that we should all have in our elections. I don't think it was lost in Texas. I don't think it was in jeopardy of being lost in Texas. Why do you have to restore confidence in an election that you're saying went well, that you're saying 
was free and fair. The only reason you would do that is because people are being gaslit. I, I do have to, but I think we do need to acknowledge in the political zeitgeist that exists right now, that is hanging over like a, a cloud. It's a pure theft. A zeitgeist perpetuated by the former president and his allies. We had a rigged election. We had a stolen election. But the bigger picture is beyond Donald Trump. It is the changing demographics of the country. And the only tactic that they have left is to try to shrink the electorate and make it harder for black, brown, and young voters to participate. And there's no question in your mind that's what they're doing right now? I don't think there's any question in their mind. They're not hiding the fact that this is what they're doing. They are pretty out in the open shouting the quiet part out loud. Yeah, and the point that he just made is really critical because you said Texas went Republican. It did. Uh, Donald Trump won there, but he didn't win the big cities. And those are the places where the, uh, the voter turnout was enormous, probably higher than ever. And those cities went for Joe Biden. And that is why there is so much pressure. And, and these Republican lawmakers there, even though you know, they're hearing from their constituents, they also see an opening to change voting laws that maybe will keep them in power just a little bit longer, despite demographic changes that help the Democrats. But don't they see that they are humoring Trump's lies, giving credibility to them, and that is doing lasting damage? Uh, privately, likely the answer is yes, but nobody would admit that anywhere close to the record. And that is because they are under such enormous pressure, Jake, by their, again, by their constituents who believe these lies. And, you know, over and over in various ways, they would say almost, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what our constituents think. And the pushback, of course, was, but you're a leader. You're supposed to say this is not true. What is true is that the election was free and fair. And the answer was we need to get back to election integrity. It was really remarkable. The same uh, verbiage in every single place I went, they used the same term. But that's like saying that we need to vote against NASA funding but because my constituents think that the moon landing was fake. Uh, yeah, well, except for the difference is that the term election integrity has a lot of power, not just with the Republican base, but even if you look at CNN's own polling with the the electorate that's broader than the base, and that's what they're hanging. And what else can we expect to see tonight? Well, you know, I think that it it really does show that all of the discussion that you have on the show and elsewhere about the big lie, it isn't just a hangover from 2020. This is very much being used in an active way to change the laws in critical swing states that could change the elections in these swing states, both in the midterms a year from now and ultimately in 2024, both in how voters have access to the ballot, but also how the votes are counted and who's in charge. Right. Voters are supposed to pick politicians. Politicians are not supposed to pick their voters. Of of democracy in peril. Yeah, absolutely. Dana Bash, thanks so much. Congratulations on the new special. You can watch Stop the Vote, The Big Lies Assault on Democracy. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. A bomb cyclone unleashing extreme winds on the Northeast, and it may not yet be over. Plus, new tech that could change the way we all travel at the airport. We'll explain next. In our national lead, coastal areas of New England remain on alert after a powerful nor'eastern bomb cyclone 
clobbered much of the region with hurricane force wind. Gas, gusts as high as 94 miles per hour tore through Massachusetts, leading to fallen trees and power lines and leaving almost half a million residents there without power. Heavy rain and wind are expected to slowly subside in parts of the Northeast as the storm moves farther offshore. Tom Sater's in the CNN Weather Center tracking this for us. And Tom, who faces the greatest threat right now from this storm going forward? Well, I think, Jake, the winds are still going to be strong enough overnight tonight to keep power crews uh, away from really dealing with live wires. Now, they're going to be cleaning up. There's a lot of damage. But this storm system is slowly spinning off. Winds are still northeast, hence the term nor'easter. But I think a lot of people are shocked by how much damage actually we've seen. In fact, the amount of rainfall, the forecast was pretty good. I mean, they had over four inches. Uh, central Manhattan, uh, you get into areas of around New Jersey up toward Connecticut, and you're getting five and six inches. But we did expect these wind gusts to become hurricane strength. And it really developed during the dark of the night last night. You can, in fact, you can see pretty much in Massachusetts in around Cape Cod, over 80, 90 miles per hour. A lot of trees that are down, especially around Boston, mainly in Southie. I think those people are really waking up to a big mess. So it's going to take days and weeks in some cases. The good news is, thank goodness, the winds will be lightening up overnight. And a good thing that this didn't occur two months from now because we would be shoveling and, and really seeing a lot of snow plows on the road. So those that have lost power, at least they're not going to wake up with frigid cold. They can make it through a, the next couple of days. But now the next system's on the way. Remember, we've been talking the last couple of days, a series of three storms making the way from West Coast to East Coast. And each one's been producing tornadoes. So a tornado watch parishes Louisiana, Southeast, Southern Mississippi until 10 o'clock Central Daylight Time. Uh, even a warning right now, that's north of Baton Rouge. Believe it or not, we've had eight tornadoes already today, parts of East Texas and toward Louisiana, uh, but many, many more warnings. And that's going to continue. So again, this third in a series of three gives us not only a threat now, the southeastern U.S., but it'll continue to make its way even into the Tennessee Valley. And then, Jake, you're in for more heavier rainfall as the storm by the end of the week continues to make its way back up to the northeast. So those that seen flooding, and there were numerous water rescues, this ground is still saturated. So it looks like we're going to have another round of heavier rainfall that will be moving into the area. But again, the good news is it's a snowless nor'easter, the series of three finally moving out of the area, and winds will lighten up. But again, those, of course, it's a nuisance to lose power. But give the crews some time. Once these winds lighten up, they'll be able to get to work. Thank goodness this one's getting over with. Next one, almost. Just a couple more days. All right, Tom Sander, thank you so much. And our tech lead, you might be your own ticket for the future of air travel. No paper, no fumbling with your phone to call up your boarding pass. Just your face. And a few questions about cybersecurity and privacy. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine got a look at the latest technology, which is supposed to speed things up. For the first time, your next flight could be unlocked by facial recognition technology, starting at bag check, going through security, and all the way to the gate. Success. You're welcome aboard. The new partnership between Delta Airlines and the Transportation Security Administration aims to save passengers time as people are flooding back to airports. And really hopefully reduce stress and increase the speed at which people traverse to the airport. Delta's Ranjan Goswami showed me how the system works at bag check. He says what typically takes 2 minutes and 30 seconds is now down to 30 seconds. He says the process of verifying your identity at the TSA checkpoint is now down to only six seconds. I think the timing could not be more perfect in many ways because you're right, more and more regular travelers are coming back to travel. 
The trial will start at Delta's busiest hub at first for those in Delta's frequent flyer program who also have TSA pre-check. Passport and visa photos in a federal database are compared with your live photo. The TSA insists that file is immediately destroyed, upping security from cyber threats and hacks. We've definitely taken privacy considerations into account the whole way. If somebody does not want to participate, they do not have to opt in and participate. They really have that choice if they want to have the experience. Thank you. Welcome to the Airlines American Airlines is also trying facial recognition at its DFW terminal lounges. But industry experts think using the technology from the moment you arrive at the airport could cut the time you spend waiting in half. If we see the TSA get that kind of an increase in uh, productivity, uh, long airport security lines could be a thing of the past. The point is, Jake, this is just the start. Delta's also rolling out some of this technology at Detroit, and it says more hubs will come online soon. But this will face the real test here in Atlanta. Delta plans to serve about two and a half million people during the Thanksgiving travel period here alone. More than 40 percent of all of its passengers airline wide. Jake. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Appreciate it. New details on that fatal shooting on set. We're now getting the account of the last person who touched that gun before handing it to Alec Baldwin. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, parents could soon be handed a miracle of modern science, a COVID vaccine for kids as young as five. But will parents sign their kids up? Plus, Democratic panic in Virginia. Will a Republican grab the governor's mansion in a state that President Biden won by 10 points last year? And leading this hour, officials in New Mexico this afternoon finally revealing details about the fatal shooting on the film set of the film Rust last week. Today, the Santa Fe Sheriff saying... It was a suspected live round that killed Helena Hutchins. And when asked about potential charges for Alec Baldwin, the actor who fired the gun and is also a producer on the film, the Santa Fe district attorney said, quote, no one has been ruled out. As CNN's Stephanie Elam reports for us now, newly released documents show that the assistant director who handed Alec Baldwin the gun told investigators he did not check all of the rounds loaded in the weapon before the deadly shooting. The facts are clear. Uh, a weapon was handed to uh, Mr. Baldwin. The weapon is functional and fired a live round, killing Ms. Hutchins and injuring Mr. Souza. Authorities in New Mexico revealing the gun fired by Alec Baldwin and killing director of photography Helena Hutchins on the set of Rust held a suspected live round. The actual lead projectile that was fired has been recovered from the shoulder of Mr. Souza. Until it's proven by the crime lab, it's a suspected live round that was fired. The sheriff saying they suspect some of the 500 rounds of ammunition recovered are live, but only one of the recovered guns appears functional. The other weapon is uh, a single action army 45 revolver. That one looks like there's some modification to the cylinder. It may not be functioning, but that won't, that'll be determined by the crime lab. The other firearm is a plastic, non-functioning revolver. New court documents released today also revealing that assistant director Dave Halls, who handed actor Alec Baldwin the functioning gun before rehearsal, acknowledges failing to fully check the firearm. The warrant saying Halls could only remember seeing three rounds. He advised he should have checked all of them, but didn't. The same document shows that armorer Hannah Gutierrez told investigators no live ammo is ever kept on set. 
Halls was previously fired from another film after a crew member was injured in a gun incident, according to Rocket Soul Studios, and was the subject of complaints over safety and his behavior on the set of Freedom's Path and another production in 2019. Two crew members also tell CNN that Gutierrez, the rust armorer, mishandled weapons on a previous film with Nicolas Cage. Officials today stopped short of announcing whether anyone will face criminal charges. All options are on the table at this point. It will take uh, many more facts, corroborated facts, before we can get to that criminal negligence standard. We need help immediately. The low-budget Western saw a number of issues during production, with a camera crew walking off the job over pay and housing disputes the day of the tragic accident. Allegations of crew using prop weapons for target practice and cutbacks in crew on set. Corners are being cut for, you know, pandemic reasons, but this is not, this is not a corner you cut. Now, it's worth noting that Rust Productions has said that safety of their crew and their actors is of their top priority. We should also note that CNN has reached out to Halls and Gutierrez, and we have not heard back from them. And one new revelation that we got today as well, Jake, uh, from this press conference was that the cameras at the time were not rolling. Some were thinking that might give an answer as to who put the bullet or whatever it was, the round, the, the dummy round, whatever it could have been, inside of that gun. And now we know that they don't have that footage from inside of the area where they were shooting. Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thanks so much. Let's talk about this with entertainment lawyer David Albert Pierce, who also teaches classes on film safety. David, thanks for joining us. The sheriff said three people handled the gun before the shooting, the armorer, the assistant director, and Alec Baldwin. Now we're learning from an affidavit that the assistant director admits he did not check all of the rounds in the gun before handing it to Baldwin. Who was ultimately responsible for making sure the gun was safe? Well, everybody. Safety, sa- safety is everybody's responsibility. And uh, I'm getting some feedback here. Yeah, that's okay. Just keep going. Just, just keep going. But I, I have to tell you, safety is everybody's responsibility. The first AD on a movie set is primarily responsible. He is the guy that is responsible for the overall safety. That is one of his major job duties. He is supposed to have a safety meeting every day. And he says, this is what's going on today. Uh, we're going to be in a desert. So everybody needs to drink a lot of water and be hydrated and let's look for heat exhaustion. We're going to use a gun on the set. You know, everybody needs to be uh, uh, aware. Uh, We're shooting blanks, but even blanks can be deadly. Uh, You know, whatever. And and certainly he's number one on the responsible for safety. The armorer, that's their one single job. Protect those guns. Watch those guns. Keep them locked up. And every single person should check and double check. As as I referenced yesterday, think of it when you go to a hospital and you get the hospital band that says your name and your date and every single person you meet in that hospital, the nurse, the the orderlies, the doctors, they just keep asking you over and over, what's your full name? What's your birthday? Why are you here? And it gets there. The redundancy is, oh my gosh, how many times are you going to ask? But that needs to be done to make sure the wrong leg doesn't get amputated. The same thing. Every single person checks and double checks. And this is just outrageous. The fact that there were live ammunition on the set, that they were goofing around, supposedly the plinking. I mean, this is just not done on traditional movie sets. And the buck ultimately stops with the producers as well. Yeah. 
What, what is Alec Baldwin's legal liability here, not just as the actor who fired the gun, but also as a, as a producer on the film? I think he has more liability as the potential producer, as the producer than the actor that fired the gun. Uh, I, uh, but the, I have to understand the hierarchy of producers. The producers are the top executives for which the buck stops here. It's the equivalent, if, if we looked at this as a manufacturing company, the producers are essentially the company president. So you have four co-presidents on this film. Executive producers are more like the board of directors. And the unit production manager or line producer is like the plant manager. And the first AD is that a number one foreman that uh, is really on the front lines with the people. The four producers that they have on this movie um, all really are creative producers. Generally, there's a, a creative producer and a more business-oriented producer um, you have here Alec Baldwin, who obviously is creative. You know, no one's really expecting him to be involved in the, in the hiring and, mm-hmm. and making sure there's compliance with, with uh, all the different things. Uh, Matt Delapino is a manager of the director. You know, he got that credit, you know, because of, of, of that tie, a creative guy. Uh, Nathan Klinger, uh, he only became a producer in 2021. All of his credits are tied uh, to... Um, uh, working with, with, with a distribution company more in, in terms of, I would say, uh, possibly finance issues. Um, right. He seems to be more of a financing-oriented guy, not a physical operation. And then the last producer is also creative. He's just the writer. Uh, is most yeah. of his background. I don't think you, I'm not sure if you wrote this. So let me ask you, special effects departments, CGI, incredibly advanced these days. Um, we've heard that the TV show The Rookie has announced they are no longer using any actual real guns on set, you know, uh, adjusted for such a workplace or not. They're only going to use airsoft guns and, and actual props, no real guns. Is there a need for real weapons on set at all, given what special effects can do? I'll tell you, Steven Spielberg did not have geneticists create baby dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. And if Star Wars can convince people that lightsabers are real, special effects in 2021 can make it, make it look like a realistic gun in post-production. And whatever little minor costs might be uh, uh, affiliated with that, I don't even think the costs uh, are, are more given that, that, that to have it proper. You have, you have your stunt coordinator, you have to have uh, an armorer and all of that stuff. Guns should not be on a set. Live guns should not be on a set. Uh, airsoft guns. You know, can can that, that just shoot out a, a little projectile can be can be dangerous. And I tell my people that even if they're using airsoft or rubber guns, treat it as a real gun. Right. Just treat. Do not spin it around. You know, people like to play. They're not toys. Treat it as a real gun. Absolutely. David Pierce, thank you so much for your expertise today. We really appreciate it. And we have some breaking news for you now. Sources are telling CNN the Democrats are now expected to drop paid family leave from their social safety net plan after objections from moderate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, progressives that originally wanted 12 weeks of paid family leave, that's been scaled back to four weeks to get Manchin on board. Now you're hearing it's out entirely? 
Yeah, it's because Manchin just was not even able to be get behind a four-week proposal. The White House made clear, President Biden made clear to progressives that he thought he could get four weeks. That's what he said a few weeks ago, just to try to get them on board behind a four-week plan. But Joe Manchin has just not moved on this issue. Says he does not believe this should be a requirement for companies to give leave, either for sick leave or for if, some, if someone has a child for parental leave, for maternal leave does not think that should be required. And as a result, this is going to fall out of the proposal. Joe Manchin, earlier today, I asked him specifically about pay leave. He said that, quote, doesn't make sense to me. He said, I just can't do it as other social programs like Medicare and also Social Security have faced issues with their own solvency. He said, I can't agree to expand social programs. Now, this is just one of a number of concessions that they've had to make to concede to Joe Manchin to get him behind this, whether it's getting rid of tuition-free community college, scaling back the price tag. But, Jake, it's still a question about some of the other key social programs. Expanding Medicare, does that make it in there? Joe Manchin's been against that. Bernie Sanders has been pushing for it, but that may also have to go to get Joe Manchin's support. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, it's not just COVID you have to worry about. A look at some of the side effects caused by life during a pandemic. Plus, Democrats hoping to tie a Republican candidate in Virginia to former President Trump. And Trump, well, he seems eager to go along with it. What he just teased ahead. Stay with us. In our Healthy Now, shots in arms for little ones could happen as soon as next week as cases dip to their lowest point since July and hospitalizations continue to trend down. But take it with a grain of salt because 22% of the eligible U.S. population remains unvaccinated. Joining us now, Dr. Chris Purnell. She's a public health physician and fellow at the American College of Preventive Medicine. Uh, Doc, thanks so much for joining us. Today, the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, said since the start of the pandemic, There have been more than 8,000 COVID hospitalizations among kids 5 to 11. But a Kaiser Family Foundation poll from September shows only one-third of parents in the U.S. plan to get their kids vaccinated as soon as possible. What's your message to to parents who are not going to run out and get their kids vaccinated? Hi, Jay. Very important question. So what that poll also showed that there is another one-third that's in a category known as wait and see. And what we know from adults and adolescents, those in the wait and see category are persuadable and movable. We just have to speak to them in plain spoken terms. We have to ensure that parents understand that the cumulative benefits of vaccination outweigh any potential risk. And we have to make sure access to vaccines for children are readily available at schools, pharmacies, as well as their pediatrician's office. Some parents might not fully understand, and I confess I'm one of them, why the Pfizer dose for an 11-year-old is one-third the size of the recommended dose for a 12-year-old. And we, I, I wonder, shouldn't this be based on, on weight uh, and not uh, chronological age? Right. So vaccines are not administered based on weight like other therapeutics are. Vaccines really are based on the developmental stage or age of the immune system in a younger person. That's why you see the differences in the cutoffs at the ages. So a parent who has an 11-year-old, regardless of size, your 11-year-old should receive the authorized dose for that stated age. And when someone uh, progresses and achieves that next milestone, then they are eligible for the higher dose because their body is designed and is fit to be able to endure that particular level. All right, interesting. 
This is an interesting uh, new study from the University of Michigan. Researchers finding that the need for liver transplants soared because of heavy drinking during the pandemic. We're also learning, obviously, that cigarette sales rose during the pandemic for the first time in 20 years last year. You're a doctor of preventive medicine. How concerning is this from a long-term public health perspective? You know, it is concerning, but it's not surprising, unfortunately. If you think about what we are going through and think about the worst of what we've been through, the isolation, we've seen a rash of mental and behavioral health diagnoses, whether that's in our hospitals and their emergency rooms or in ambulatory practices. People have struggled coping, whether those folks are physicians and healthcare providers or those people are people who are stay at home. This has been difficult. There has been social, cultural, political, you name it, all types of upheaval. Hence, you see a resorting to behaviors that are not as healthy as drinking and smoking. So we've got work to do. We've got work to do to ensure that people understand what are the bedrock actions that you can take and how can environments support those healthy behaviors. And we've seen spikes in mental health related emergency department visits as well, especially among teens during the pandemic. What can be done to prevent these pandemic side effects uh, given this is something for us to talk about now because there will be another pandemic, people predict, experts. Yes, there will be another pandemic. It is just something we know from epidemiological data. And we've got to be more prepared. When we talk about preparedness, we need to think about preparedness in mental health and behavioral health. We need to think about things like mental health first aid or emotional first aid. We hear a lot about how do you recognize the warning signs of a stroke or the warning signs of a heart attack. But the lay public has to understand how do you recognize when a person is going through toxic stress or they're in crisis? And how do you refer people to resources that can help them mitigate these dangerous and very concerning times. And what do we do? What supports and connectivity do we build into our normal and daily practice to to help people head off, I would say, exacerbations in mood disorders? All right, Dr. Purnell, good to see you again. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Jake. Coming up next, a race to watch for the U.S. House of Representatives, the challenger to Congressman Matt Gaetz, who is raising eyebrows. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a race to watch in next year's midterm elections, Florida's first congressional district. It's right there among the Alabama border. It has been solidly red since 1992. Republican Congressman Matt Gates holds the seat. He is, of course, now facing potential legal troubles and a challenger who made her name defying the law herself. Rebecca Jones, the data scientist fired in the scandal over COVID case numbers from Florida's health department, Jones became something of a darling to critics of Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. You might recall her dramatic arrest last December or her stint in jail in January. But but since then, Jones has been suspended from Twitter. And as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, she's running for Congress and in a contest full of drama. Cruel, corrupt, and criminal. Just some of the names being flung at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Republican Congressman Matt Gates by Rebecca Jones, who is running to take Gates' seat. All I've ever wanted to do is help people. But her campaign as a Democrat is complicated. And if being a public servant right now means unseating Matt Gates and helping represent the f- people of Florida more fairly, 
then that's where it goes. You may remember, Jones, in the early months of the pandemic, when Governor DeSantis was pushing hard for business to get back to normal fast, Jones emerged from her job in the state health department as a fire-breathing critic, claiming officials were asking her to manipulate data to show less COVID impact. They hit back. She is not involved in collating any data. She does not have the expertise to do that. By May of 2020, Jones was fired for being insubordinate, and she says she was. What I asked, was asked to do was illegal and immoral, and I wouldn't do it. They have a gun out! Then her story grew wilder. In December, state police, guns drawn, raided her family's home on suspicion Jones had improperly accessed a state messaging system after her firing, urging other workers to expose alleged COVID denialism. She denied that and once again went after DeSantis. This is just a very thinly veiled attempt of the governor to intimidate scientists and get back at me while trying to get to my sources. In January, she was charged with computer-related offenses anyway and turned herself in, telling reporters... I just tested COVID positive, you guys, so... A Democrat appointed by DeSantis to handle much of the COVID response has said Jones was running a disinformation campaign for her hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers, a notion echoed by other political watchers who paint her as more disgruntled employee than whistleblower. Twitter has suspended her account. She has filed and withdrawn a lawsuit against the state over the whole affair. And now she is insisting, even in Matt Gates's deeply red congressional district, where he's facing allegations of sex trafficking, which he denies, she can and must win. I've got two kids. I had a career. I can't get hired anywhere. No one wants to hire a whistleblower. Look back at the last year and a half of her life, and that's what a lot of this is. Explosive claims and impassioned denials. And what any of this means to her campaign hopes, well, who knows, Jake? But we do know this. Subsequent reporting has shown that Florida has tried to, at very least, contain numbers that might make the state's pandemic response look bad. Do we have any idea why she was suspended from Twitter? There's a huge debate over that. She says she posted an article in favor of her position too many times, and that broke some kind of rule. Other people say, no, 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 it was disinformation. You were trying to steal Twitter followers. That's another whole mess. But this story is simply filled with things like that in all directions, and finding the truth of it all is very hard. All right, Tom Foreman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. President Trump teasing a trip to Virginia, but does the Republican candidate there even want him to come? Stay with us. Extremism can come in many forms, can come in the rage of a mob driven driven to assault the Capitol. It can come in a smile and a fleece vest. Either way, the big lie is still a big lie. And our politics lead, that was President Biden going after Republican gubernatorial candidate Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, who is often seen wearing a fleece vest and smiling while campaigning. Biden repeatedly attacking Youngkin by comparing him with former President Donald Trump, questioning Youngkin's integrity, saying Youngkin embraced Trump to win the primary but now does not want to be seen with him. We should note, Youngkin has not actually himself pushed the big lie. He has said President Biden was elected fair and square, though his critics say that Youngkin has played footsie with election deniers in order to win their votes, calling for an audit of election machines, for example. 
CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now live from an early voting spot in Virginia. Jeff, this is, by all accounts, an extremely tight race. Uh, but right now, Biden is struggling to pass his sweeping agenda. He's seeing declining approval ratings. How is Biden's presence in Virginia being received? Well, Jake, among tried and true Democrats, it's being received actually pretty well. And that is the point here. The McAuliffe campaign needs to just get out the people who voted for Biden or some share of them who voted for him last year to turn out in this governor's race. If they do that, there's a very strong chance they will win. But among the Democrats I was speaking to, certainly who uh, took the time to turn out to that rally last evening where I was at, they are happy to see President Biden overall. Yes, there are some disagreements on policy. Yes, they want Democrats to get their act together and sort of end the gridlock and pass the agenda. But there is a sense uh, of, uh, of enthusiasm among those core Democrats. That is why President Biden came to Northern Virginia and he won the Commonwealth by 10 percentage points. But Jake, he won this county 80% of the vote. So those are the Democrats the McAuliffe campaign is going after, trying to um, awaken them. If you came to a vote for Joe Biden last year, come to vote for Terry McAuliffe this year. As for Glenn Youngkin, he was campaigning in Roanoke today. He accused uh, his opponent of just bringing in all these Democrats who don't live here, saying there's no enthusiasm. But they are particularly trying to go after those Biden voters. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss. And Alice, you, you just heard uh, Biden comparing Youngkin to Trump and to the big liars, uh, the insurrectionists in some ways. For the most part, Youngkin has been trying to avoid directly being tied to former President Trump. But now it appears Trump is going to come to Virginia some way. It's, it's kind of unclear. But in a new statement, Trump said, quote, Arlington, see you soon. And then Trump's director of communications followed up that statement with, quote, details will be released when appropriate about Trump coming to to Arlington, Virginia, Northern Virginia. That's quite the tease. We should note it doesn't say when he's coming. You know, it could be for Christmas shopping, for all I know. Um, but could this hurt Youngkin? Potentially. Look, Glenn Youngkin has done well, very well, without Trump by his side. And I think that is important to note. And, and he is a far cry from Donald Trump. His tone and tenor and his demeanor is, is diametrically different than Donald Trump. The thing they have in common is policy. And, and I think it's, it's, it's humorous when we see uh, President Biden going after Yunkin for a fleece vest. Look, I will take a fleece vest <laughs> over an empty suit any time. And right now, McAuliffe uh, has, does not have the momentum. He started out with 95% name ID, and right now he's neck and neck in the polls. And in the Yunkin campaign internals show Yunkin ahead by two. It's because he has the message and the momentum. And despite all these all-star surrogates out there for McAuliffe, they're not able to sell what people in Virginia aren't willing to buy. And right now, they don't have the momentum. Uh, we have a Virginia voter right here, a Paul Begala, yes. Democrat, with your I voted sticker because they have a lot of early voting I voted. Uh, in, in Virginia. And I assume you voted for Terry McAuliffe. I did. I, I, it's Do a you, private ballot, but he's been my friend like 35 but you, years. So. But you would love Donald Trump to come to Arlington before the election. Am I wrong? I, I would. And more importantly... Mr. McAuliffe, Governor McAuliffe, would really like that. Uh, he's already put out a statement. The state party chair, Susan Swecker, who's one of the best state party chairs in America, right away out with a tweet that said, Virginia is for lovers. It is not for losers. We defeated Donald Trump twice. Bring him back a third time. We'll beat him again. This is what the Democrats need, because right, right now, uh, the, all the focus, appropriately, has been on the Democrats' failure to pass their agenda in Washington. That depresses them. By the way, it's an artful trick. This is hard to do. I don't think I could pull this off. It's depressing the Democratic base and alienating the swing vote that they need and inspiring the Republican base. This is hard to do all three at once. And yet somehow we've accomplished it. 
Congratulations. So, yes, God <laughs> bless Donald Keep Trump. Keep up the good work. No, but see, this is the thing. Now we're not going to, we're going to talk about Donald Trump for the rest of this. And, and it, it is the same agenda. Uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Youngkin did play footsie with those uh, big lie folks talking about how number one priority for him was election security. He said he's going to go on offense to outlaw abortion the way they have in my beloved Texas, the way Mr. Trump wants to do so across the state. And now he's he's talking about banning Tony Morrison's no, books, he's, he, the he's, Nobel Prize he, winner? He's not in favor of banning it. He's running an ad. But he ran an ad with a woman is, who yes. did favor temporarily but that banning that is Glenn Youngkin's ad, and he paid for it with the multi-millions of dollars that he's earned as a private equity uh, uh, millionaire. That, that is about parental involvement in the, in the school system. And look, as much as you would love to make this about Donald Trump, yes, I would. Donald Trump is not on the ballot. Glenn Youngkin is on the ballot. He's not talking about Donald Trump. The Democrats Why? are. He's, Why? Because, because he's out there talking about what... People of Virginia, like yeah. myself, are concerned with jobs, pocketbook issues. No, he's uh, talking about Tony Morrison. And, and he's he's race-baiting no, on a Nobel so, so, Prize-winning novel. Well, let, let's, let's bring some other people into this uh, discussion. Ayesha, before 2020 in Virginia, early voted, lasted only seven days. Mm-hmm. And vo- you needed to have an excuse. You're yeah. gonna, you had a doctor's appointment. You are going to be out of the state or whatever, out of the Commonwealth, rather. But now early vote in Virginia is 45 days long. There's no requirement for an excuse. Anyone can vote by mail early. How does that change the calculus for Republicans who don't often turn out in early voting? Well, the one thing that Glenn Youngkin has done that also is not like Trump is that he has embraced the early vote and he hasn't told them, you know, told his voters uh, just come on Election Day. He is he is or it's rigged. Yeah. Or it's rigged. (laughs) He has told them to to come out and try to do early voting. So that does go into his favor. The, The problem for Democrats, too, could be that, you know, people who would normally vote on Election Day are now just kind of voting earlier. They're not getting more votes than they would necessarily have otherwise. And they have to make sure that they're getting young people to actually come out and vote. So so those are some of the, the, the complications that can come with early voting. I mean, more people voting obviously is, is good, but that's that's what they're trying to figure out right now. And, and Zolan, usually early voting typically favors Democrats uh, and vote and Election Day voting favors Republicans. So far, there's been more than triple the early turnout than four years ago. If Democrats typically turn out early, does that mean it is necessarily safe to assume that McAuliffe mm-hmm is leading with the early vote. I mean, you can say that the Democrats right now are outpacing on early voting, but there's a couple key points, I think, to point to before we kind of get ahead of ourselves. Many of those folks that are uh, that are engaging in early voting now also did it in the 2020 election. So and it's not necessarily based off of some data thus far, uh, new voters necessarily that are coming forward. Also, Aisha just hit on a really crucial point, which is also the concern around young people going and engaging in early voting. I believe I saw one data tracker that said just 6% of voters between the ages of 18 and 28 uh, had engaged in early voting as well. So when you look at that, there are some points for concern. And, and let's remember this this race here also matters a lot to some folks in Washington and in the administration. Sure, absolutely. Right? I mean, this is really a test for many folks in the White House as well as on Capitol Hill around can the president's agenda, I mean, you were just hinting on it, can the president's agenda also galvanize a voting, uh, uh, the electoral uh, 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 vote, especially, and I mean, this is just the start, but we're going to see yeah. more, especially yeah. going towards And the there's election. some, there is some shocking video I just want to show because, um, Look, Republicans like Alice Stewart and Glenn Youngkin have not engaged in the big line. I think it's important to point that out. Um, but the, the reason why so many people hate it is because not just that it's a lie that hurt Joe Biden's feelings, but because it, it potentially can cause violence. We saw January 6th. And I want you to take a listen to this. The founder of the conservative student group Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk, recently held an event 
where a member of the audience asked him when Republicans should start using guns against people who, quote, steal elections. Take a listen. We're living under a corporate and medical fascism. This is tyranny. When do we get to use the guns? No, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? So, no, I, 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 no, hold on. I, I'm, no, stop, hold on. And that, now I'm going to denounce that. I'm going to tell you why. Because you're playing into all their plans and they're trying to make you do this. That's okay. Just hear me out. What I'm saying is that we have a very fragile balance right now at our current time where we must exhaust every single peaceful mean possible. I mean, first of all, we sh- Charlie Kirk denounces this, quote unquote, but only because in that clip, uh, because you're playing into all their plans and they're trying to make you do this, not because you shouldn't talk about killing people, not or and not no one stole an election. Yeah. Shame on him for not stopping that man in his tracks and saying none of that. Stop that kind of talk. That's that's nonsense and ridiculous and dangerous and stupid. Look, my pastor always says your feelings might be real. It doesn't mean that they are true. And people need to stop thinking that because they feel the election is not safe and, and fair, that it's truly not fair. They need to get past that. They need to embrace the fact we have free and fair elections. We have integrity in our election process. And we need to move forward and get past this um, inciting violence and danger because you don't like the outcome of an election. Amen. Alice Stewart, thanks so much. And thanks to everybody here. Coming up, Taiwan's president sitting down exclusively with CNN. What she had to say about the threat from China. That's next. And we are back with our world lead in a CNN exclusive. You heard President Biden's promise during his CNN town hall. The United States, he said, will defend Taiwan if it is attacked by China. The White House later walked back those remarks. But now Taiwan's president tells CNN she is confident the U.S. would step up if Beijing tried to make a move on the Democratic island. Those comments coming from the president's first international TV interview in nearly two years, where she also tells our Will Ripley The threat from China is increasing every single day. At this temple in Taipei, prayer and politics go hand in hand for Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen. Normally when I um, go to the temple, there are hundreds of people there. I will shake hands with each one of them. People are remarkably happy, at ease. You have to give them a sense that there's somebody there to take care of them. Elected in 2016, Tsai won re-election by a landslide last year on a promise to keep people safe from what she calls a growing threat across the Taiwan Strait. Is Taiwan more safe today than it was when you became president in 2016? If it's a threat from China, it's increasing every day. The mainland's massive military, two million strong, more powerful than ever, China flew 150 warplanes near Taiwan in just five days this month. This democracy of more than 23 million governed separately from the mainland for more than 70 years since the end of China's civil war, still seen as a breakaway province in the eyes of Beijing's communist rulers who have never controlled the island. China has pressured most of the world to sever formal diplomatic ties with Taipei. Chinese President Xi Jinping says, Reunification is only a matter of time. Are you interested in speaking with President Xi? Would you like to have more communication with him? Well, 
more communication would be helpful so that we would uh, reduce misunderstanding given our differences, uh, differences in terms of our political systems. Um, we can sit down and talk about our differences and try to make arrangement um, so that we would be able to coexist peacefully. Your predecessor, as you know, did meet with President Xi. Uh, why do you think that things, the communication has really gone south since 2016? Well, I think the situation has changed a lot and, and China's plan uh, towards the region is very different. That plan includes war threats over Taiwan, clashes with Japan in the East China Sea, and militarizing man-made islands in the South China Sea, posing a direct challenge to seven decades of U.S. military supremacy in the Indo-Pacific. In response, the U.S. ramped up arms sales to Taiwan, selling the island $5 billion in weapons last year. President Tsai confirms exclusively to CNN U.S. support goes beyond selling weapons. Does that support include sending some U.S. service members to help train Taiwanese troops? Well, yes. Um, uh, we have uh, a wide range of cooperation with the U.S. Uh, uh, aiming at uh, uh, increasing our defense capability. How many U.S. service members are deployed in Taiwan right now? Um, not as many as uh, uh, people thought. Defense Department records show the number of U.S. troops in Taiwan increased from 10 in 2018 to 32 earlier this year. The State Department asked for more Marines to safeguard the unofficial U.S. Embassy in Taipei. Any U.S. military presence in Taiwan, big or small, is perceived by Beijing as an act of aggression, state media says. When reports surfaced earlier this month of U.S. Marines training Taiwanese troops, China released this video, a training exercise targeting Taiwan independence and interference by external forces like the U.S. A warning for President Joe Biden who vowed to defend Taiwan at this CNN town hall last week. So are you saying that, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if yes, China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment to do that. The White House later walked back Biden's comments. They seemed to contradict the longstanding U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity, leaving U.S. military involvement in Taiwan an open question. People have different interpretation of what uh, President Biden has said. Do you have faith that the United States would defend Taiwan if the mainland were to try to move on Taiwan? I do have faith. And uh, given the long-term relationship that we have the U.S. and also the support of the people of the U.S. as well as the Congress and the administration has been very helpful. Taiwan's defense minister says China could launch a full-scale war by 2025. He says military tensions are the worst in more than 40 years. We have to expedite our military reform so that we have uh, a, the ability to defend ourselves. And uh, given the size of Taiwan compared to the size of, of, of the PRC, um, developing asymmetric capability is the key for us. How prepared is Taiwan today? We are trying to make us uh, stronger in every aspect uh, and it includes our military capability and our international support. 
support bolstered, she says, by Taiwan's critical importance to the global supply chain. The island is a world leader in semiconductors. Taiwan was Asia's fastest growing economy last year, a fact President Tsai proudly points out over lunch. This is one of my favorite food. All right. Despite everything, she appears calm and confident. You talked about how really the situation is so complex now. Yeah, it is very complex. This is probably the cha most challenging time for people of Taiwan. You, you read the outside headlines, the most dangerous place on earth. We read these um, reports as a reminder to us as to what sort of the threats that we're under and uh, we have to get ourselves better uh, prepared. But we're not panicked, we're not anxious uh, because oh, we have gone through so many uh, difficulties uh, in the past. She says Taiwan's future must be decided by its people, the people who've worked hard over the last 70 years to build the world's only Chinese-speaking democracy, a democracy under growing threat. This is the first time in more than 40 years that a Taiwanese president has publicly confirmed U.S. troops are here on the island training Taiwanese troops. And it comes at a time that the U.S. is calling for a more meaningful role for Taiwan at the United Nations, much to the ire of Beijing, which just yesterday said it is not ruling out the use of force to reunify with this island at any cost. Jake. CNN's Will Ripley with that exclusive interview. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a federal judge has ruled in the case brought by Kobe Bryant's wife, who will now have to testify. That's next. In our sports lead, a federal judge has ordered the Los Angeles County Sheriff and Fire Chief to answer questions under oath in a lawsuit brought by basketball legend Kobe Bryant's widow, Vanessa Bryant. She is suing the county over leaked photos of the helicopter crash site where her husband and daughter died. She claims the pictures were improperly shared by sheriff and fire department officials. The lawsuit alleges that department employees took photos of bodies believed to be of her husband and her daughter and shared them with people at a bar and at other settings irrelevant to the investigation. In a deposition earlier this month, Vanessa Bryant said she and her family suffered severe emotional distress after learning about the release of these gruesome photos. Kobe Bryant was, of course, only 41 years old. His daughter Gianna was only 13 when they and seven others were killed when the helicopter crashed into a hillside in Calabasas, California in January of last year. You can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and even the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with Wolf Blitzer, who is right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.